Good morning, church family. It's a real blessing to be able to be with you this morning. Uh, Before we look at our passage, I would just like to express my and Amy's thanks, uh, especially to all the members here at the church, uh, for all the kind messages of encouragement, for all the prayers and the support that we've received uh, leading through the whole core committee process, and especially uh, since this Wednesday at the members' meeting. Uh, We've just been really blessed, and we, we so appreciate the the church body that has come around us. Uh, we appreciate the elders and the core committee for all the hard work that they did and just for, for their leadership of the church in this time. Uh, we are both very excited, uh, but at the same time, we do ask that you continue to pray for us for the Lord's leading. We want to be led by the Lord and not by our own desires. And during this time, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to grow up in a local church, and it's a terrifying thing to then be uh, called to that local church. Uh, so I do ask that you especially be praying for me, please. Uh, it's, a, it's a real blessing uh, to be able to be here at the church this morning opening God's Word, and I do hope that from this morning no one regrets their decision on Wednesday. Uh, but we will, we will be blessed by God's Word, and one of the things that I am most encouraged by is how God's ability to speak to us is not limited by the inability of the person presenting His Word. Uh, so before we begin, let's just pray and commit our time together to the Lord. Our gracious Father and God, we ask that you would lead our hearts and our minds this morning. We ask that you would make yourself more known to us through your word and by your spirit. Help us to know and savor Jesus Christ more and more because of what we read, what we study, how your word washes over us this morning. May we be glorified, so may you be glorified, Lord, in our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm so glad that we get to open God's Word this morning, uh, not only because it is a privilege, but is because it is a blessing. It is a blessing to have the living and active, uh, spirit-breathed Word of God in our hands. It should cause us to itch with excitement as we open up the pages like a child on Christmas wanting to get at their presence. We should wonder, we should be in awe of what God is going to say to us. And in our time this morning, we are going to be looking at a familiar passage, uh, for, for many of us, especially if you are a churched, uh, churched person or a churchgoer, you will recognize this time of the year. It's a time that we know well. It's sermons and it's texts, it's passages that we've gone through before. But even for any of you who might not be a Christian this morning, who we're so grateful for you joining us, uh, we know that this is a, a passage, these are passages as we go into this week, that might be so familiar that in fact they've lost their touch They've lost their flair. We, we treat them as something very normal as opposed to something which with God is really wanting to speak to us, to have us grow in our love and commitment to the Lord. Uh, so as we go into it this morning, I, I do hope that our time will be fruitful. We have prayed that God will bless His Word to our hearts. And if we come away from the service uh, today not following Jesus more closely, Uh, There is something that we have not managed to understand from his words. I do hope and pray that that will be the result, that we would love God more. With COVID having struck us in the last couple of of months, one of the implications and one of the, the incredible things that has happened, even here at the life of the church, has been the very quick movement of technology. In many places of work and school and university, we've experienced a movement of technology, especially in South Africa, at a pace that we didn't really know was possible. One of those things has been the the use and the new introduction of high-tech identification. Uh, CCTV cameras, fingerprint readers, uh, facial scanners, and as ever, the super high-tech Honeyridge sign-up sheet. 
all of these systems are there in order for us to be able to identify something and for someone to be able to identify us. It really is for us to be able to know what something is. As we look at this passage this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, this whole section, this text that we're going to be looking at is really doing the same thing. It, in part, is written by Matthew so that we can learn to recognize and respond to Jesus as the promised king, the promised king, the promised Messiah, the one who has indeed come in the name of the Lord. So I do hope that you are eager, like myself, to hear from the, the word of the Lord this morning and to be able to study in our Bibles. Um, so won't you please turn to Matthew chapter 21, and we will read our passage together this morning. Matthew chapter 21, uh, starting at verse 1 to 11. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place that what was prophesied through, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell, daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So as we dive into our passage this morning, one of the very first things that we see is the direction of Jesus' travel, right in verse 1. And for the last three years, Jesus has gone from small town to small town, village to village, preaching the gospel and using miracles to clarify and to prove the message that he was preaching was true. And from the passages surrounding ours this morning, we see that Jesus was moving up from Jericho to Jerusalem. There was a large crowd of followers that was with him. And we see this all the way from chapter 20, just the previous chapter, that there was a large crowd. And this large crowd is about to evolve into what we will see in, verse, in chapter 21, into a very large crowd. And we will see why that is. There's a reason for the buildup in this passage. There's a reason why almost, well, more than half of the book takes three years of Jesus' ministry. But then about a third of the book happens in the last five days. Firstly, if you read the Gospels, uh, you will notice that there's a theme that runs all the way throughout. And it might be something which confuses people, and it's what theologians call the secrecy motif. And this is when Jesus would speak to people after he had done miracles, after preaching the Gospel and doing signs and wonders to validate his message. And he told them to keep quiet. Don't talk about what has happened. Don't go and tell the religious leaders. Don't speak to the political authorities. And what was happening here is that Jesus wanted to suppress the excitement about his ministry, not in order to deceive anyone, 
but in order so that he could continue to minister to, minister to the people that he had come to do ministry to. There is a change, however, in our passage. And as we walk into our passage, we see the verses leading up to this passage. Instead of continued secrecy, instead of a hush-hush environment, we now see that Jesus opens up the floodgates and allows a full worship of himself. Now, something which ought to catch our attention here is that all throughout the entire Bible, the Old and the New Testament, no one is allowed to be worshipped as God but God. So for Jesus to open up this as an option, is Jesus not only not being hush-hush, but is Jesus proclaiming who he is? And put yourself in this moment. Never mind the fanfare of a royal wedding on TV with all their military police and guards and barriers. Imagine the king, the true king, the coming king, the king that the world was waiting for, coming into town, and the people not being barred, the people not being held off, not having to wait behind barricades, but the people becoming a part of the procession. Unlike the kings of today and unlike the royals and the dignitaries and the important people today uh, who are accompanied by fancy entourages and many vehicles, uh, Jesus' procession is different. Jesus comes with a ragtag group of healed sinners, a truly humble procession for a glorious king. The importance of this location where Jesus was moving from and to might be lost on us. Uh, So let's pause for a moment and look at where Jesus was going In verse 1, we see that Jesus moved as he approached Jerusalem to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives, the the word mountain, mountain might be a little bit misleading to us today. In Israel, a mountain is anything slightly higher than a hill. So it was about 30 to 40 meters tall, uh, but it was really just an outcrop, uh, just an outcrop of land off to the direct east uh, of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives' significance in the Old Testament especially, and we don't have time to go into all the texts, but all of the texts boil down to that the Mount of Olives is where God will finally judge his enemies. This is where God will judge his enemies, but not just his enemies, but those who claim to follow him. And those who claim to follow him are those that we will see in this very passage. Those who might raise their hands in worship, they might sing Hosanna, they might cry out, save us. But those are who also walk in darkness, those whose lives do not reflect the truth. It is upon Jesus' arrival at the Mount of Olives that we see the significance of his Messiahship, of the fact that Jesus is the coming King, that he approaches the Mount of Olives, and it's here where we begin to see the first of our two themes that we will explore from the text this morning. The very first being the theme of fulfillment from verse 2 to verse 7. Upon arriving at Bethphage, Jesus sends two of his disciples on a mission for a donkey. It almost sounds like a children's storybook. Jesus says in verse 2, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied up there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now we must pause here for a moment and try to not skip forward to what seems like the more exciting part of the story and ask ourselves what Jesus is doing here. What seems like Jesus sending his disciples on a mission to go and steal a donkey is in fact Jesus preparing his disciples for a great fulfillment using a lesser fulfillment, but an important one. There is no human way to describe what just happened here. And for many of us, and we'll touch on it now, but there is nothing that any human being could have done. There is no one of us that can say exactly what would have happened in the village over. 
No human being can predict this. No person can say that there will be, as you walk in on the left-hand side in the third store, underneath underneath the garage roof, a donkey with her foal. And not just a donkey with a foal, a donkey that is untrained with a foal that hasn't yet been ridden. What Jesus did here must have perplexed his disciples, even though they knew him, even though they had seen him do many miracles. We see again and again the disciples asking questions of Jesus because they don't truly understand who he is yet. He acts out of his omniscience, his divinity, his perfect knowledge. And essentially, he accesses the knowledge that he has as God, as God in the flesh. And he points his disciples to the exact right place to find this donkey. Now, in the day and age of superhero movies and the false prosperity teachers on what's uh, Christian television with their pseudo-healings, we've become quite desensitized to the idea of the truly supernatural, of a real miracle. We, we look for things, and we unfortunately describe things as a miracle. Like, I got to work on time this morning. It was a miracle. Uh, we, we talk about getting paid in time as a miracle. Managed to have lunch before I was too hungry. It was a miracle. We've desensitized ourselves. But in fact, this here is Jesus, with his full knowledge, doing a miracle. He says to the disciples, there will be something, and only I know of it, and it will be exactly as I say. And they find it exactly as he says. Not only is Jesus speaking with perfect knowledge, but also with authority. Notice the wording that he says to his disciples to use in case they're confronted. The master needs them. The Lord, the kurios, needs them. And he will send the donkey back as soon as he's done. Jesus speaks with the fullness of authority. And this points us actually back to the Old Testament, to a time where both Solomon and David had royal mules, They both had royal donkeys, and it was that at any time they could speak and those donkeys would be brought to them. So Jesus speaking here speaks of donkeys that are his, of donkeys that he had never seen before. And he sends his disciples to fetch what is his, to fulfill what he has come to do. This should amaze us, but it's understandable that it doesn't. It's understandable that we've become desensitized. It's understandable that perhaps we don't view the supernatural as the supernatural anymore. We read these stories and we view them as stories. It's lovely that it happened. But can I ask you to search your own heart this morning to ask yourself, what would you have done as one of his disciples that morning? This is the same Jesus that they would have slept next to, that asked them for food when he was hungry, that walked dusty roads with his disciples. This is the same Jesus who was mocked for the gospel, who the Jews wanted to stone, This is the same Jesus who makes a claim on every single one of our lives when he calls us to follow him. What do you do when Jesus speaks with perfect knowledge? Jesus' perfect knowledge, his omniscience, his knowing of all things should give us peace, not just peace as we read this passage, but peace knowing that the road ahead is known by our King, is known by our Savior. But also, his speaking with perfect authority should give us confident to be obe- confidence to be obedient, knowing that he is in control. Look at the response of his disciples. Jesus spoke, and they went. There is something truly incredible about those words. Jesus spoke, and they went. Now, I'd like to quickly note something here, and uh, look at the wording of verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them. Now, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's just proven his omniscience, his perfect knowledge. But how can God claim to need anything? 
Now, something which the, the scholars comment on here, and it's helpful for what we're going to look at later, is that it's not that Jesus' legs were tired. It's not that the disciples were a little bit overwhelmed. It's not that Jesus needed a rest. Jesus needed the donkey in order to fulfill the will of God, in order to show what his mission was and who he is. And he needed the donkey, this humble mule, to prove to the world that he is the Messiah. Think about the humility and the ordinary means that God uses to tell us about who he is. Think about the Bible in your hands right now. Think about the simple things that God has given us. Yet we explore all the other options. Our obedience is so contingent about how we feel that day. But God uses ordinary means to call us to obedience. In verse 4 to 5, we read this. Sorry, in verse 5, we read, Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there's much for us to see here, but Matthew notes, what Matthew notes is that Jesus did these things in order to fulfill a prophecy. And Matthew is one of the only gospel accounts that really points us directly to the prophecy found in Zechariah 9, verse 9, which reads like this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. Now, to us, this might seem foreign, but if you were to take yourself back 2,000 years ago and become a Jew, you would have been waiting with anticipation for the coming Messiah. The people then knew that God had spoken. He had spoken through Isaiah and Jeremiah. He had spoken through Zechariah and the other prophets. He had said that there would one day be one coming and they must look for the signs. And Zechariah's prophecy tells us four main things about this Messiah to come. And in each of those, in each of those items, we see that Jesus perfectly fulfills them. Firstly, the coming Messiah would be a king and he would be a righteous king. Now, this is something that we almost scoff at today. Imagine having a president of the country which isn't corrupt. Imagine having a leader in the world today which isn't full of nonsense. It's something we can't really imagine. But here, the coming king was to be righteous. It was to be expected. It would be something that the people longed for, like we long for, to be led righteously. Now, ever since the Jews abandoned God as their king in 1 Samuel, and adopted human kings that fell short of every one of God's standards, God had in time planned to produce and to send forth and to bring a king that would act in perfect righteousness. And all the scriptures speak of this coming king. We also see in multiple places in scripture what this king would look like and all the requirements of this godly king. We, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 23, Psalm 72, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, all of these texts boil down to one main element. This coming Messiah, this king, will be righteous. Paul writes about Jesus that he knew no sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus was able to make purification for sins from Hebrews 1 verse 3 because he is the exact expression of God's nature. He is completely sinless. Jesus came to earth born of a virgin Mary, not having a sin nature like you and I, resisting temptation in every way and walked righteously before God. So the first requirement fulfilled. Secondly, the king is victorious. 
The wording here means that the righteous king will show himself to be a savior. The language of see, your king, your king is coming to you, can also be translated, your king is coming for you, for your deliverance. So even 500 years before the coming of Jesus, Zechariah pens these words that the coming king will be your deliverance. Now don't be tempted because of the time scale to depersonalize this this morning. The Messiah would come for all who would turn to him. We know in the New Testament that both into the vine, that, they will, that God will graft in the Gentiles, and that is who we are, the same people called by God to the Messiah. Jesus is asking by this prophecy, by his riding in on the donkey, are you one of my people? And as we celebrate this this morning, are you one of Jesus' followers? If you're a non-Christian here this morning, all of this might seem like a little bit of a religious cop-out, and I get it. Jesus came and got himself killed. Uh, you know, the Bible now tries to cover it up because he didn't manage to bring about this uh, religious uh, revolution in the world. And now we as Christians celebrate it, and we, we try to just put a bit of a spin on it. And I can understand how you might get there. This is a reasonable argument, in fact. And it's only reasonable, however, when you don't consider the rest of the Bible. It is, however, when we examine the whole Bible, all of the Scriptures, that we in fact see that Christians should be confident in Jesus' coming death. What we know is was from the very beginning of time, from Genesis, from in the beginning. We see in Genesis 3 that God said that from the seed of the woman will come one who will be bitten by the serpent, yet will crush its head in victory. In Isaiah 53, we're told about the Messiah to come, that he will be rejected despised, not celebrated, a man of suffering who knew sickness and who people would turn away from, not loved. He was despised and undervalued. He was stricken, afflicted, and rejected. And worst of all, he was struck down by God himself. Now, I hope you see this morning that this coming Messiah, the one who would save God's people from the punishment of their sins, was the one destined to suffer and die be killed in the place of a people who couldn't pay that penalty price for themselves. As wrong as this might sound to us, Jesus wins fully because he was willing to die in the place of his people. So while to anyone sitting here it might sound, and especially if you're not a Christian, this might sound like a religious cop-out, I want to plead with you to think of something outside of yourselves and to look to God's word Look to how God in his word speaks about the coming Messiah, winning not in a way that we consider winning, but by dying in victory. Can you imagine a greater love? A love which says, my victory is found in bringing my people to myself at my own cost. This is the great love of Jesus, the righteous, saving King So, the second prophecy, fulfilled. Thirdly, this king would be humble and gentle. We know that Isaiah talks about the Messiah, who is Jesus, having no form that was impressive, nothing impressive to look at. And I think if we were to have the whole church this morning take an A4 piece of paper and write out an entire list of how we would describe the royal family in the UK, the very last thing that would come up amongst jewels, crowns, and lavish lifestyles and golden carriages would be the word humble. In fact, humble almost doesn't even seem to fit the entrance of a king. 
wouldn't it be strange to see the next royal wedding at a normal chapel down the road? What do you mean, humble? What do we mean, humble? How can the righteous Savior King, how can the God of the universe come in humility? Humble is too common. It sends the wrong message. Kings are meant to be mighty and glorious, powerful and majestic. Yet here comes to the earth in the humblest of ways, King Jesus, born to a poor family, staying in a manger, living a normal life in a nowhere town with a carpenter dad with no real advantages. This is Jesus, God wrapped in human flesh, dwelling among sinful people with all power and authority. Yet Matthew says in Matthew 11 verse 29 that he is gentle and lowly. What a humble Savior King. The third prophecy fulfilled. And fourthly, this righteous, saving, humble king is also a peaceful one. Instead of riding in on a battle horse, instead of coming in with military might and sword and bow at his hip, instead we see the Messiah riding in on a colt. Not even a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And as we scan through Jesus' ministry recorded for us in the New Testament, there was, one, uh, there was at no time a point where Jesus raised his hand against another. There has never been anyone that has walked in a way that we can describe as humbly as Jesus. To walk in humility in this passage doesn't simply mean to be nice. It means to lay aside all authority and self-importance. It was, important, it was impossible sorry, for Jesus to not be fully God while being fully human, yet he served and laid down his life. He served and laid down himself for us that we might see the coming king. Friends, do you see yourself this morning that Jesus here in this very moment perfectly fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah to come? It is without a doubt then that this coming Messiah, that the people understood when they looked at Jesus, that Jesus riding on the donkey in front of them presents them with an option for how they are to respond. The question is, not simply who is this Jesus. The question is, what will you and I do with this Jesus? What did the people then do with this Jesus? See, Jesus places himself in the royal line of the kings of Israel, but he is not the king that they asked for. Like Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, Jesus was a king, but he's a different king. In any context, having the king come in riding on a donkey would be like if our president, Saul Ramaphosa, were to ride down the N1 on a tricycle. Yet this is Jesus, the unlikely and unwanted king. And just for a brief moment, I'd like us to consider the Easter event coming up this week and some of the implications for our own evangelism when it comes to inviting friends to church, when it comes to speaking to people about the gospel. One of the great battles in our day and age currently is being fought over the idea of truth. When sharing the gospel with someone uh, and you're talking to them about Christianity, you're talking to them about your walk with the Lord, people aren't as rude as what they used to be in saying, I'm just not interested because it's just not politically correct. Instead, most people will be found with some answer of, that's nice for you, but it's not for me. Yes, this is good truth for you to live by, 
but it's just not for me. Now, if I can be so bold as to ask this question, what kind of postmodern nonsense is that? Imagine saying that there is food in the fridge that has gone off and we must not eat it, but it'll be good for someone to eat. Or imagine saying that the check engine or the petrol lights in our car is simply imposing its truth on us and that I believe that my engine is fine or I believe I have petrol. The truth is that no one lives this way. People might talk this way. The philosophy of the world at the moment might be leaning heavily in this direction, but no one really lives this way. For someone to say there is no truth, if you were to take their wallet, they would say, but that is mine. One of the great truths of this passage, something which should encourage us and which I hope that each of us could use in our own evangelism this week leading up to Easter, is found in verse 7 where it reads, and it's simple words, and he sat on them. It is five of the most wonderful words if we give it enough time. Five words which, the pro- which fulfill the prophecies of old. Five words which confirm Jesus to be the very Messiah spoken about for thousands of years. When we read in verse 4 that Matthew says, This took place so that what might be fulfilled through the prophets, sorry, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, it's the same language as this. It happened in accordance with the scriptures. This is God's way of handing us an evangelistic flare gun. We have a historical fact, an actual event, not simply recorded, but a promised event by multiple people in different generations, in different locations, all pointing to a single event and person, not knowing who he will be. Yet here we have King Jesus. When inviting friends or family to, to church over Easter, when sharing the gospel with them around the events of Easter this year, I pray that none of us will feel nervous, that none of us will be worried about what if these people find the story of a man on a donkey strange? Why are we shaking tree leaves? Why, uh, why are people shouting? How can we celebrate this odd occasion? What if people don't take it seriously? And what if they don't believe me? Friends, take heart. Be confident. Use God's word to defend your faith. Speak boldly about the promises in God's word made thousands of years ago with no knowledge of who Jesus would be, the man exactly that would stand in front of them, yet it is perfectly fulfilled by Christ. And while this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus' triumphant entry, which in fact only starts happening from verse 10, the prophecy of Zechariah is in fact twofold. In chapter 9, Zechariah promises a coming king, a human king. And in chapter 14, he promises a coming divine king. In chapter 9, we see the first coming of Jesus. He comes in humble appearance, nothing special to look at. A king ready to suffer and die, a humble servant king, ready to take on the sins of the world in their place. But when Jesus comes again, however, he will come as the divine king, just as the prophets foretold. He will come to rule and to judge. And perhaps it's worth asking ourselves, for ourselves this morning, why are you a Christian? Not how did you become a Christian, why? Why should all those who are not Christians become Christians? Is it reasonable to believe in a donkey-riding king? Kent Hughes, a theologian, writes, We are Christians because we know that Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures and that in him all the prophecies of God find their yes and amen. 
Our faith is a reasonable one, a logical one, a real one, because it is true. And as you speak to people about the gospel this week and every week after that, that is what we appeal to. We don't ask them to have faith in something which they can't see, can't touch, can't think about, can't feel. We ask them to look at what is true. And like any reasonable claim, to believe what is true. All the pieces of the Old Testament point forward to Jesus and are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. They identify him to be the man, the savior, the king, the one that the Jews and we have been waiting for. So why am I a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Well, I hope that your answer would be, I am a Christian because I am convinced by the grace of God showing me from the scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that in him there is salvation. The second theme which I would like us to look at then, lastly, is in verse 8 to 10. And this is responding to Jesus. And in these verses we see how we as people, how the people then ought to, should have, could have responded to Jesus as king. So now we see Jesus moving on a donkey down the road towards the gates of Jerusalem. He has, in fact, not yet entered the city. I know our texts are labeled in our Bibles as the triumphal entry, but in fact, Jesus hasn't yet entered. As Jesus approaches, the crowd begins to swell, and the people take to the streets. According to Jewish customs, as the people came to the Passover festival, you were meant to walk barefoot down the roads as a sign of pilgrimage. But here we see Jesus abandoning the pilgrimage of an ordinary man and showing that he is king again by riding on this donkey. The people place their clothes on the ground, and as Matthew and John records, they take palm branches off the, off the trees nearby and they lay them on the floor. The use of palm branches is, is a reference from uh, 2 Kings chapter 9 where we see that kings were welcomed in after battle especially or into a new city that belonged to them with clothes on the ground and palm branches to celebrate their authority so that the people could show that they were humbling themselves, submitting themselves before this king. It was a sign of honor and respect. Their shouts would have pierced the city's ears nearby. Imagine the people of Jerusalem, the people not in that street, the people hearing these shouts and shouts, singing and crying out, for Hosanna is the son, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. As the people see this coming king, they cannot help to view Jesus through the lens of their present situation. This Roman oppression that they were under. Every day they faced Egypt-like environments of being ruled over while knowing they wanted out, and every day still a slave. If there was ever anyone to free them from this oppression, from this worldly, from this worldly prison that they were in, it was this coming king. Surely it must be the Messiah. Surely that would be the role of King Jesus. He wouldn't just come to, to talk to us about himself. He wouldn't just come to do miracles. Surely he would save us from these people. Imagine the mind of the Jew 2,000 years ago. Imagine someone so deeply under oppression. Imagine someone so broken by their circumstances and looking at this person who promises to be the savior of the world, the person who is being worshipped, Imagine the fanfare. He surely will lead our armies. He will bring a revolt. He will be our commander. He will fight our battles. He is our king. 
The shouts of Hosanna, which means save us now. Their excitement, the swelling crowd. Oh, how incredible this scene must have been. A people who waited years and years, generation after generation, speaking to one another about this coming event, this very day, seeing Jesus riding in on a donkey, thinking, finally, our Savior is here. In a way, their shouts are truth. In a way, their shouts are right. Save us. Their desperation had reached a tipping point, and their words were full of truth, but their hearts were full of sin. Oh, how they missed it. These cries are the words of Psalm 118, which was sung and shouted at festivals to human kings, and just another sign of the idolatry of the Jews, the idolatry of the human heart, being willing to subscribe and acclaim to human kings what is only due to God. See, the problem was for these people that Jesus was the Savior, but he wasn't interested in saving them from their human oppressors. Jesus was far more interested in saving them from the very sin that was causing their hearts to proclaim him as Messiah, to see the prophecies fulfilled, to see King Jesus, yet to want a political victor and a military commander. Now, we might be, te- we might be tempted to think that because their hearts were not in the right place that their response was wrong. No. Their response was, in fact, right. It was wonderful. Jesus ought to be worshipped. Jesus must be praised. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords, the wonderful counselor, Prince of peace, almighty God. This group of people across the various Gospels is described in terms of both disciples of Jesus, those who followed him truly, as well as those who have seen Jesus do miracles and were fans of Jesus. What's my point? If we step forward only a few days in time in the life of Jesus, we will again see a huge crowd. We will see an angry crowd. And this time they will not be cheering on, but instead they will be calling out for his crucifixion. This same crowd. This crowd is made up of the very people who would have stood outside the gates, waving palm branches, putting their clothes on the road for this coming king, getting caught up in the moment. These very same people. If we would only look into our own churches, we will see both of these groups of people. There are those who genuinely love Jesus, who follow him as their king and savior, and they worship him, not only with their mouths, but their bodies, their lives cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The gospel has changed me. But there are also those who stand in the pews of the church, singing the songs and even getting involved in the ministry, in the worship of God, while externally, They would claim to be Christians. Internally, their hearts are far from God. And perhaps it was the excitement of a moment in time, or it seemed like the right thing to do. But at a time, but at this time, there had been no heart change. There are many people who, like the Jews, know a lot about the coming Messiah. They know a lot about Jesus. They've heard the Sunday school stories. They've grown up in the life of the church. But when confronted with the real Jesus, when the real Messiah is in the road of their life, claiming, staking a claim on their life, calling for them to repent, to follow after him, suddenly a different story. To put it simply, to many people, Jesus is the Savior that has never saved them from anything. The problem is that outwardly, both of these groups look very similar. Both groups celebrated Jesus. Both groups are excited about Jesus. 
to be king and even to rule over their lives in, in some way. And for our context, that would be that some people are excited that Jesus is who we preach, who we talk about, who we teach, who we sing about in the life of the church. These people are in the church. They're in our Bible studies. They're in our ministries. So the difference is not seen in the time of the worship service. As Jesus walks by with the palm branches and the songs, the difference will be in a few days' time when Jesus stands in front of this next crowd. So what happens when people take a promise and twist it to their own desire and don't get what they expected? What happens when we believe that we can be Christians claiming the promise of God of salvation but not following after God as He commands? As we approach this Easter time, we will reflect upon the great suffering of Jesus. Our Savior and our King went humbly to Jerusalem, knowing that this would be His final journey. He would allow the worship of Himself to frustrate his opponents, to eventually where they would fulfill the will of God in calling for his crucifixion. We see in verse 10 that the whole city was in an uproar. This volatile crowd would be exactly the ones who would gather together by, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, with the political competition, with the Roman captors, to have Jesus to be captured, beaten, bloodied, and murdered on a cross. As in Jerusalem, there are those who openly hate God, and we see these people in the city. They have the evidence. They have every opportunity to respond to God. Still, they choose to harden their hearts and suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. The truth is that by nature, we are all born this way. We are all born God-hating. We are all born sinners and rebels. It is only when God, by His grace reaches out through the truth of the gospel and by the working of the Holy Spirit that by faith we can trust in God, we can accept the free call of salvation, forgiveness of all our sins in grace. So taking a step back, how do we then tell from the first group who we are? Are we Jesus followers or Jesus fans? It is only when Jesus makes a claim on your life that you will see what you really believe. It is easy to stand on the roadside of the Christian life as Jesus comes past in fanfare, standing in the church service, listening to sermons and, and uh, singing, joining ministries and even serving. But how do you feel when Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the Savior in your life? How do you feel about his call on your life to repent and believe? What is your reaction to when Jesus makes a truth claim on your entire life, calling you to die to yourself, to abandon sin, what do you think when Jesus calls you to take up your cross and follow him? This is when many people who would claim to be Christians suddenly join the crowd. They turn around and shout for Christians to stop being so judgmental. They call for more love and more grace and less of the rules of God. These are the people who, in lovingly confronted with God's word, turn away from God, walk away from the church, and abandon the faith. And at the core of it, these fans of Jesus are those who, when confronted in their sin, turn to their sin and call for the death of Jesus. This is the wickedness of our sin. The very thing that Jesus came to save people from will be the very thing that people defend in their abandonment of Jesus. Everyone likes the idea of humble, donkey-riding King Jesus. The problem is, when we see the Messiah, Savior, Majestic 
King Jesus. Now, can I ask that we not be too quick to judge those who might have come to our mind when hearing this? Where are you today? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Nothing we can do or say or not do and not say will change that. But everything we do and don't do will change who we are in relationship to him. Are you following him? Not did you choose to once follow him many years ago when you professed faith. Are you following him today? Does it show in a changed life? Or are you perhaps a part of the first crowd? Not a part as in a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but a fan of Jesus. We raise our hands in worship. We passionately give up our time, even our money and our resources. But when Jesus makes a claim on our life, we abandon him. If you are not a Christian, or perhaps you find that you would have thought you were a Christian, but as you examine your heart, you find that it's more of a fandom than a follower, can I plead with you this morning to turn to King Jesus? Look to the gentle and lowly king. He is God's own son sent to die on the cross for us. Not because we are worthy, but because none of us are worthy to save ourselves. He is perfectly sinless, meaning that he could be a perfect sacrifice accepted by God the Father in our place. He went to Jerusalem to die, knowing that it meant a bloody and awful death. He went willingly because of the great love that he has for us. No one took his life. Jesus laid it down on his own as a ransom, a payment, not to any earthly figure, but to God himself for our own forgiveness because the shedding of blood is demanded for sin. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, defeating not only sin through his death, but even death itself through his resurrection. And he ascended to the right hand of God where he intercedes for all his people. You see, the coming King Jesus, this promised Messiah, is amazing news for those who live for him, for those who trust him, for those who know him, for those who have been saved. But for those who don't know him, for those who have not trusted in Jesus, this Savior King is awful news. The same Savior King, this humble and gentle and lowly King, will one day return in judgment of the world. So can I plead with you, turn to Jesus today. If you don't know him, if you think you know him, but you've, in fact, never trusted in Jesus to be your savior, to save you from your sins, plead with him today to open your heart, to give you a mind that can see the truth of the gospel, that you might turn to him for free forgiveness, knowing that what Paul says in Romans 10, that all, anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're a Christian this morning, How is your life responding to Jesus? Is it a life of worship? Look afresh this morning to Jesus. Look again at our lowly Savior. Look at our mighty King. Isn't He wonderful? Isn't He glorious? How loving is our Savior King? As we go into this week, I pray that we would reflect upon the the events of Easter. But I pray that our faith would not be merely our own that we would invite people to church, that we would speak to those about the gospel, that we would take the factual, historical, reasonable accounts of God's word and speak to those in the world. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for not leaving us as unworthy, deserving sinners to face your wrath. Thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for the Messiah. Thank you for giving us your Son, the promised one, the Savior of the world. We pray that our hearts would have confidence this morning, knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, our Savior, that if we trust in him, he has forgiven us of our sins, and that you count us as righteous. We pray for hearts, for our hearts to be set ablaze in worship this morning. We ask that you would go with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.